Welcome to Peter Reading. Lit from the basement. This is Danielle. And this is Max. I'm an author and professor. I'm a retired adventurer, former ne'er-do-well, and now stay-at-home dad. We're a married couple. Discuss literature in our basement while our children are sleeping. Our show is pretty simple. I introduce Max to a poem. We discuss it a bit and use it as a springboard to discuss issues that we're passionate about or personal stories from our lives. And the boys are now asleep, so... Let's talk. We're going to start real quick with a new segment that we call The Corrections. Corrections. Last episode, I misquoted, it was W.H. Auden, and um, the line I misquoted was, I smell blood and a prominent era of madmen. Switch two words, and the true and the actual line is, I smell blood and an era of prominent madmen. This has been The, the Corrections. Corrections. <laughs> there will be more to come in future episodes. Well, so tonight I wanted to talk about a poem by Dennis Johnson and to explain my personal connection with this poem, why it arrived to me at a pivotal moment, why it urged me to make a bold or perhaps dumb decision. I'll let you be the judge of that, whether this was brave or profoundly stupid. So let me give you some exposition. Okay, it's 2001. Mm-hmm toward the end of September in New York City. Oh. The 9-11 attack has happened, and not even two weeks previous. Uh, and I was almost out of money for the month, which meant that I was almost out of money, period. You had just moved there, though, like the week before the attacks. Yeah, yeah. I actually put down first month's, last month's deposit on September 1st uh, at a sublet in Astoria in Queens. So you had just wrapped up your undergrad and moved to the big city. Uh-huh. Yeah. And because I was only 22 with my, you know, freshly minted English degree and I'd never rented an apartment on my own before, mm. I had no idea how much it would cost. So after a security p- deposit plus first mas- last month's rent, you know, I had about 200 bucks left to re- live on for the rest of the month. And I didn't have any clothes to go interview in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I, it never occurred to me to buy professional looking clothes because I'd never had to do, you know, do an interview for an office job mm-hmm. before. And that's what I was mostly applying for. Um, so I also had no credit cards, no parents I could ask for money, and no job. This is where I am in like the third week of September, right after September 11th. Um, Despite this, at the beginning of the month, I was feeling pretty optimistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was broke, but I'd always been broke, so I knew how to live cheaply. And besides, you know, I was a really hard worker, and there seemed to be like hundreds of entry-level positions available to apply to. Mm -hmm. But then after 9-11, you know, after the terrorist attack that traumatized everyone in the entire city... The nation. The nation, right. I mean, I can talk about that more in depth later on, but I'm going to stick to this work story. And meanwhile, I was down in Washington, D.C. when that happened. Oh, yeah, that's right. Waiting to meet you. (laughs) Whatever. And you met me and then you forgot me promptly for a decade. We'll forget. Okay, let's move along. We'll we'll come back to that. (laughs) Okay, so all the positions that I applied to, like, either never called back or called just as a courtesy to say that due to the uncertainty of the economy, yeah, that they were no longer offering the position. So I persisted. There's not 
really anything else I could have done. I didn't even have enough money for like a bus ride home mm-hmm. to the Northwest. Um, and eventually I landed an interview through a placement agency um, with a corporate consulting firm on Wall Street. And I, I went to that first interview and I left being really certain that I botched it. Mm-hmm. Um I, I was really nervous the entire time, and somehow the nervousness rolled itself into a kind of bravado. Yeah, like, I, I'm blowing this, and now I'm going to ride this wave. Yeah. I don't care now. Is yeah. that, it's like that? Yes. I'm going to bomb, I'm gonna bomb on, my, on, my, on, my, on my terms. On my terms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going out with a blaze here. No, it was ridiculous, because I, you know, I was quite hungry, because I had $200 at the beginning of the month, and then I had to spend like $100 just on interview clothes and my mm. fake pearl earrings mm. and, and all this other stuff. Up and I was like, God, I only have like a hundred bucks. I mean, I knew how to like make it spread and I was, you know, financially a vegan for the month, but, um, financially vegan. Yeah. <laughs> and also you were, you were, I, I know you had become adept at, uh, shoplifting your dinners. Oh, well that I had, I had, I was done with that at that point. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was just an undergrad. That was an undergrad thing. Necessity. That was when I very first started, uh, being broke. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't too concerned about, about any of that, but you know, I got down to wall street and then wall street itself seemed to be, it like, it cleared its throat with assured masculinity (laughs) in like a way that I found both abhorrent and envied. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I sometimes have this kind of envy or have throughout my life of being like, God, what would it be like to just be a guy? Like, just be a guy who's like, I'm a man. You should listen to me. I'm a man. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you married the wrong person. You're looking at the wrong person to ask that question. I was going to say, I don't think I married the wrong person. Well, I just... you married the right person, but you married a sigma male. Yeah. <laughs> you, maybe we can go outside and find an alpha male somewhere. Mm, yeah. Well, I, I, I've always envied alpha males, quote unquote position in the world of being like that self-assured just be like yes no maybe right i'm a white man <laughs> yeah what exactly I say happens. sell it you know like what whatever it is that those guys say mm-hmm. i'm like oh I, you know it seems like it would be like really- 23 skidoo yeah exactly and somebody's like yes right away sir Rudy and then somebody- <laughs> yeah, they're like belly who and then they just keep harumph. going <laughs> oh my he said harumph what does that mean uh you know everybody's screwing around to to uh, interpret it but anyways so my, my my interviewer at the american consulting firm or some such title i i don't know what the name of it is um it's not is it's not actionable that's not the name is it i don't have to i don't know i okay. I, I mean i i have no idea i don't remember the name if that was the name it's entirely accidental yeah if that was the name it's not the name <laughs> for those listening you know, with their lawyers on speed dial. <laughs> but uh, so the CEO and founder of the company was this um, older Israeli dude um, who was completely bald with thick glasses, um, who nevertheless had this kind of clear vitality mm-hmm. and who liked to ask really incisive and what I felt like were personal questions. Like he didn't seem interested at all in my undergraduate classes. And instead he asked questions about my family how I afforded to go to college, and what I was doing there in New York. He actually asked about my study abroad program at some point, and uh, 
uh, what what my impressions were of other countries, you know, because I, I had sort of traveled around a lot. And I mentioned that, I, you know, and here he'd asked me a question, and I was sincere in all of my answers. Mm-hmm. But I was like, well, I wasn't expecting to be asked this for the interview. I thought it'd be like, where do you see yourself in five years? Mm-hmm. And all the things that I had prepared myself online. And he was throwing me all kinds of curveballs. But I went, I went into this kind of monologue about how I was alarmed at the corporate reach of America. Wow. <laughs> and how I began to understand how America was this kind of economic blob that consumed anything of authenticity or originality in its path. And at this point, he sort of rose up from his desk and began walking briskly around the room. And being a man of business, he had a completely different take on the matter mm-hmm. and began arguing with me about the beauties of capitalism. <laughs> now, I, I don't have a background in business, and but I know that you're not supposed to do this in an interview. interview. <laughs> you're supposed to smile and be charming and appear smart and competent. Um, but for some reason, I, I couldn't let his comment go. Mm-hmm. And I began arguing against him. And since I don't don't have a background in business, I began doing the only thing I knew how, which was to take apart the language that he used to construct his point. Oh. Um, and he and I went back and forth several times. It went on for what felt like a long while, <laughs> and I just kept standing my ground. <laughs> like, what am I even doing? Like, I'm in this skyscraper talking with like my a stomach sea, is grumbling. Yeah, on Wall Street, and like, there's part of me that's going shut up what are you doing we need to eat like don't burn this bridge right but i i i don't know i just like kept doing it so this went on for a while and then and then i left the interview in kind of a daze and you know like like walking through the door and i was like i mean he's definitely not calling me back like i am not getting that job for sure um but and i went around and went to go see a friend and sort of decompressed and got home by the time I got home, I had a voicemail on my phone saying that um, could I come in the next morning for a second interview mm-hmm. at like seven like before anybody even would get to work. So that really shocked me. Um, but of course, I was like, yeah, OK, second interview. What He wants to give me another chance for some reason. <laughs> the other candidates must have been so awful. <laughs> yeah, they must One have must have been picking his nose. <laughs> The other one was drinking his coffee out of his cup. I actually <laughs> just rubbing his bald head, being like, mm, so smooth. <laughs> like, Taking his teeth in the sheen of the yeah. of his future boss's pate. Yeah. I actually I actually did see one of the candidates before me going into that office, which was a a, a young woman who was um around my age with like blonde hair and really nice makeup and a red suit. Mm-hmm. Um, who was like, and like all bouncy. And I was like, oh, I mean, clearly she's going to get the job and not me. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm weird compared to her. Anyways, so I, I made my morning commute down the next morning to Wall Street from Queens wearing the exact same outfit I'd worn the day before because I only had one interview outfit. But you moved your right earring to your left ear and your left <laughs> pearl earring. So you move the position of the pearl earrings. So you right. mix my it up. My fake pearl earrings. Mm-hmm. Right. And my cheap, like, navy-colored polyester skirt suit. It's terrible. Uh, so you have to imagine me at, like, 22. I'm skinny and young in cheap professional wear. And I'm smushed at the center of the entire train 
the entire train car of men who are all in suits with briefcases and like serious stares. Um, so at this point, everyone was still on edge from the attack and uh, exiting the subway onto wall. There were guards, mm-hmm. either police or actual soldiers. I can't remember standing at each corner with gas masks and rifles at the ready to protect. I mean, I assume the New York Stock Exchange and its brokers. Um, probably not me. <laughs> no. <laughs> and all that morning and all through the train ride, um, stepping out across the street and then going past the building security and riding in the elevator up to the CEO's office, I kept thinking of the first four lines of Dennis Johnson's white, white collars. This was the CEO you were interviewing with? Yes, of oh. the company. Okay. Right? It was It was nerve-wracking. Yeah. So I wasn't trying to to think of it, and I mean the poem itself. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to think of it. I mean, after a while, I was trying to think of anything else, but the words kept coming back, kind of louder and louder, like like when you're trying to sleep and you get a jingle in your head and it will not go away. Um, and then as I stepped off the elevator into, it was very it was a very strange thing because I stepped off the elevator and the CEO, the guy, was there to greet me, um, and asked me to hang up my jacket. And it was really dark in the office, like it was mostly dark and cavernous. And so okay. we walked through so this I'm, enormous, like dimly lit room. Like I'm toward, already having alarms. I know. Me too. Um, toward, there was a massage table he walked you over to. <laughs> I thought that Barry was White is playing. I did have like a thought in my head. I was like, oh no, like he must think I'm really desperate. Like this isn't, but I, I, I when he's like, oh, I like to get here early, um, you know, before anybody else. And I, I wanted to congratulate you myself that he was giving me the job. Um, mm. And he's like, oh, come follow me to my desk. And we went to his, his office, and I sat down across from him, this very large, like, shiny wooden desk. And there was a huge window behind him, and I was watching the tops of the skyscrapers, and they were kind of glinting with glass. And uh, I don't know. It's like, I think probably the the image of the planes crashing into the world trade center Mm -hmm. just kept coming back over and over in my head and the tops of those skyscrapers looked so vulnerable vulnerable and arrogant like what are you even doing out there like you stupid skyscrapers you should be ducking yeah you should be taking cover right and i and i started getting really shaky like sitting there in the chair and these lines from this poem kept getting louder and louder and louder in my head And as he began explaining the various structures of his company and what I'd be doing there, you know, the poem came blurring through my head so loudly that I literally could not hear the man speaking. Did he explain why you were selected? Yeah, actually, he did. Because at some point, you know, he's like, you got the job. And he's like, you look a little confused. And I was like, "Um, I'm just curious as to why you're offering me this job. I don't actually have much business experience. And actually, he said um, something really interesting, which is that, well, you know, I see that you, you, you have an English degree. You did very well in that. And so you're good with language. It's like, yeah. He's like, you come from a working class background. Your father was a carpenter. Your mother was a waitress. So you know what hard work is. You supported yourself through college. I was mm-hmm. like, yes. He's like, you're here in New York and you don't have people, which means you have ambition. Oh. I was like, yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, he had me dead on. Right. All the questions that he was asking before were excellent questions if that's what he was trying to suss out. He was like, I've interviewed lots of other people for this position. Like, they're, they're rich kids whose parents uh, paid for their college. They don't know what work is. Mm. He's like, I can tell you know what work is. You know the value of work, and you're smart, and you weren't afraid to argue with me. That's what I need in a consultant. Oh. Um, and I was like, oh. And that's what I need in a wife. <laughs> no, that's me speaking, not him. That's that's what me, Max. <laughs> I was hoping that was you. No, he didn't say anything about that. Um, so he was like, you you already have the makings of a good, good consultant. Everything else I can teach you. Mm. I was like, oh. So um, while this conversation was happening, Dennis Johnson was Dennis bouncing Johnson in your was head. ruining my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what would have happened? We well, wouldn't have met, so whatever fortunes you might have amassed would have done me no good. <laughs> I know, but it, it came it came through so so thoroughly and so clearly that in between one of his, he was like in the middle of a sentence, and I was like, "Excuse me," he's like, "Yes," I was like, "I think I've wasted your time, and I don't want this job." What What did his face look like then? I'm sure he's not a man who's used to hearing no from an underling. He he was he's kind of great. I mean, in retrospect, I'm really curious about like he made a huge impression on me. Mm, yeah. And um he seemed like an unusual person, you know, very smart, kind of scrappy, scrappy old Israeli dude. Mm -hmm. I kind of liked him. Yeah. Like I kind of liked him immediately. Mm -hmm. Um and he sort of looked like he sort of looked a little bit quizzical and I was like I'm sorry to have wasted your time, but I'm certain about this, and I'm not going to accept this job. Wow. Please um, offer it to somebody else. He said, he kind of shrugged and was like, okay, your choice. And I was like, thank you for your time. And I left. <laughs> um, and I don't know what my life would have been like if Dennis Johnson hadn't jumped into my mind at that particular time. So do you want to hear this poem um, that, like, this, changed this the course of my course life? shifting poem? Yes, yeah. I want to hear this. <laughs> okay. White, white collars. By Dennis Johnson. We work in this building, and we are hideous in the fluorescent light. You know our clothes woke up this morning and swallowed us like jewels, and ride up and down in the elevators, filled with us, turning and returning like the spray of light that goes around dance halls among the dancing fools. My office smells like a theory, but here one weeps to see the goodness of the world laid bare, and rising with the government on its lips, the alphabet congealing in the air around our heads. But in my belly's flames, someone is dancing, calling me by many names that are secret and filled with light and rise and break, and I see my previous lives.
what was the line going through your head as you stared out the window? It was the first, it was the first four lines, <laughs> that first quatrain. We work in this building and we are hideous in the fluorescent light. You know, our clothes swallowed us like jewels and rode up and down in the elevators filled with us. Hmm. It just kept going over and over on repeat in my head. And possibly it was just the terrain I was in. Everybody was wearing suits. And possibly it was going up into the elevator for this. But, uh, I mean, I felt like, without being able to completely articulate myself at the time, I felt like it was a sign from sort of my inner emotional self telling my logical self, we're going to pretend like those are two selves right now for some ridiculous reason that that this was going to make me unhappy i mean in retrospect maybe i was just traumatized from 911 mm-hmm. quite possible and also like i would love to hear people weigh in was that tremendously stupid of me to not take this job like I wonder if taking that job I would have been sort of financially secure in a way and would have kept writing anyway like I can't actually imagine a life in which I wouldn't be writing Mm -hmm. I can imagine a life in which I wouldn't necessarily be teaching Mm -hmm. that's how I make my money now um but um we will have to, because uh, I was about to say you would have been trading it for a life of snack thoughts and snack strategy. <laughs> That's that is from um, Stephen Dunn's "The Last Hours," which um, um, of of the few poems I know, I maybe we'll we'll come to that next for next Labor Day. Uh, I, I I won't maybe lead that discussion. Um, I will present you with the poem and then tell you my thoughts. I don't know. A year from now, maybe you could lead that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> if you're, well, you're an excellent teacher, but let's see. <laughs> I do have questions about this. Yeah, for um, sure. Let's talk about the poem. resonates. It resonates. Okay. Wonderfully. But I feel like it's like um, trying to hug smoke. This poem. Oh, yeah. If I'm going to say, I'm like, man, this is a great line. What does it mean? Resonates, (laughs) for instance. Actually, hugging smoke is an excellent description of what the poem does. If you pay attention to what he's doing with sensory detail uh, throughout the piece. Okay. We work in this building and we are hideous in the fluorescent light. There. I'm good with all of that. I'm, right. I'm, there we go. Okay. That's right. easy. I mean, it's straightforward, but also and it's unnatural. Factual. And it's factual. And it's unnatural, right? You know our clothes woke up this morning and swallowed us like jewels. Okay. The last word of that is what throws me. I'm with it. Like, okay, uh, this is not me. This is something that has engulfed me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm subservient to it. I've been consumed by it. Right. And I guess I'm a jewel. I'm my, yeah. my, my, I've been dimmed by this. Is that yeah. where we're going? Yeah, your jewel self has been swallowed. Like if you if you take a jewel and you put it inside a suit, but, you don't even see the jewel. But like swallowed like jewels, mm-hmm. not like ran like a cheetah. It's it's not it's not something I've. The suit swallowed us like jewels. There's not an animal that swallows jewels. Okay, I'm sorry. There is uh, for the D and D players out there. Don't swallow anything. <laughs> They swallow the world. <laughs> what are you saying about D&D? Oh, D&D. There's a creature called a Zorn that, that eats jewels. Anyways. Hmm. Um, so swallowed us like jewels. Yeah, that, that, that each individual person is some kind of like 
original piece of um, a shining jewel, right? That's being obscured by these suits because their individuality is being erased. Mm -hmm. And then the and then the suits proceed to ride go about up their and day. down the elevators filled with us, which is so creepy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so incredibly creepy. It's like these the, that the suits have the agency and the people do not, mm -hmm. right? So they're plugging into this larger culture, which says that they should not have any individuality. Um, and then turning and returning. Like the spray of light that goes around dance halls among the dancing fools. Now, again, I'm with it. Mm -hmm. uh, again, but if somebody said no, what is that? How does that translate to the real world? I, I get what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Obviously, dancing balls. Uh, and But the filled with us turning and returning like a spray of light. Now I'm getting confused. If I if I think about it, I don't understand. Right, right. Okay, so turning and returning. So, uh, he, I mean, obviously at this point, the turning and returning, he's already begun to reach toward this idea of an elaborate dance. Everything is um, laid out among you, right? But turning and returning like the spray of light that goes around dance halls mm -hmm. among the dancing fools. So, oh, well, yeah, so it's interesting. So the, the, the suits themselves aren't even physical. Mm -hmm. Like they have become light at this point, right? The light that goes around dance halls among the dancing fools. Um, I mean, at this point, it is it does end up pushing toward mixed metaphor. So I see why you would be. Um, confused because mm -hmm. first you have um, the suits swallowing us like jewels which sounds snake-like right right although he doesn't use that word no so and we're talking about suits so it's just a surreal image right and then ride up and down the elevators filled with us so they're they're taking us they're taking us around turning and returning and then so it, it feels like you already have a metaphor going on but in fact he is stating this as if this is a real thing. Right. So we, he, he takes that real thing, which he takes, which is surreal. Right. And then he takes that and he, and he applies that to a metaphor. So turning and returning like the spray of light that goes around dance halls among the dancing fools. So it's like they've become pure light instead of any kind of sensory detail or any body of mm -hmm. any kind that the suits turn them into not even the dancing fools, no, right? No, something that's a background noise to the dancing fools that's right. highlighted every now and then upon one. That's... Right, right. So your your description of trying to hug smoke is about right. Here is the beginning of, of sort of the alienation of these workers from the physical world. But yet it's still delivered beautifully. Jewels, like oh, yeah. light, disco balls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then you get this next line, which I love. And again, here, I, yeah. My office smells like a theory. Huh? Yeah. It's absolutely devoid of physicality. Right? Mm -hmm. A theory is just nothing that... A theory is floating around in the world and hasn't been necessarily proven. Right? Mm -hmm. It's theoretical. Nothing proves a theory wrong like experience. In a lot of ways. So if my office smells like a theory, the office itself, the physical building that they are in, 
is somehow theoretical. <laughs> so we're getting like less and less and further away from any sense of physicality. Uh, ten, uh, ten, um, yeah. Tangitna. Tangible sensory detail, right? Um, and so at, at this, at, you know, they're so far away from their human physical forms that and my office smells like a theory, but it's also, um, I mean, you have the word smells, which is so interesting um, because it could mean like, it smells like a theory meaning it smells like nothing, mm -hmm. nothing at all. It smells like no humans live here. But also though, uh, a smell is something you can question. Is, yes. he, is he having a stroke? Does he smell burning hair? This isn't really something, <laughs> something he imagines. Whereas touch, taste... I mean, that's these, true. That's these true. senses are more concrete. One of the things that I was thinking of is that you also use the word smell to be derogatory in some way, right? right? right. That, that smells. That's mm -hmm. a smell. You know, you don't say that smells <laughs> in any kind of positive say. When you say that smells, you mean it stinks. Yeah. When you stop there. That's, yeah. 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 <laughs> I remember walking down the- She smells. Like, good. Yeah. <laughs> like but you don't want to, you don't, that line pop. break real good. <laughs> I remember walking down the street one time with this concert with this uh, with a poet named Ahmad Johnson who's wonderful, and uh, we were walking past like a Jimmy John's. I, I don't know why. I always remember this every time I see the sign. I think of him, and the sign it was like a neon sign that said "Free Smells," <laughs> and I remember him being like. I don't want any smells for free. Right. I don't want. I don't want. I any, want top shelf. Yeah, exactly. I don't want any smells for free. He's like, I will pay for my smells. Thank you very yeah. much. The free ones? No, no. no keep just, them. Keep yeah, them to people, yourself. That's why they pass them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Terrible. And that guy totally passed a free smell. Just crop dust at us. <laughs> um, but it keeps going. Okay, let's let's. Let's but it press keeps on. going on. Right. But here one weeps to see the goodness of the world laid bare. At that point, you begin to see how this person has is feeling so alienated from what they are doing mm -hmm. and who they are in the world. Right? That you get the sense that they're like on the verge of crying. <laughs> One weeps. Yeah, the the entire time. But here one weeps to see the goodness of the world laid bare. And then rising with the government on its lips. What? Yeah, I know. The uh, alphabet congealing uh, in, in the, the air, air around our heads. Yeah, so suddenly now we're in beat poetry. <laughs> like, oh, Mr. Commuter, wash me not in your tofu. No, I, th I, think, I think that the government uh, here and the discussion throughout of... of um, this person feeling so alienated from their work is a direct Marxist critique of capitalist hmm. endeavors and how um, they are creating uh, a sense of alienation in humankind. Okay, you're going to have to, I won't say prove that, but at least explain it to me. Yeah, sure. So, um, so in, um, I mean, Marxist theories are far more complex than, than, this at all but um he was it was a critique of capitalism so I, i'm getting that this is yeah okay uh, you know and one of the main critiques is that uh, well in his idea there are really two classes one's the bourgeoisie they own the means of production mm -hmm. and the proletariat who are the workers mm -hmm. um and the the purpose of capitalism is to create profit at any cost mm -hmm. 
So the lives of the proletariat, the workers. They're the disposable. Yeah, they're yeah. completely disposable. Um, and so everyone is sort of, everyone in the system to a certain extent is alienated from any sort of natural sense of humankind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was really concerned with factory work more than anything else, right? right. Like his critique came around um, the, uh, a critique of the industrial revolution right. all over the place. So people separated from their own labor's benefits. Right. And they just do this repetitive job and they are not meant to have any personality or mm. insight or critique or analysis or anything like that. The best thing a worker could be is like a machine, mm -hmm. an automaton. Um, and that if you stepped out of that position at any time, it was dangerous to the whole system and you would be punished. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, I mean, he really delves into the part that I'm most interested in is, is delving into this sort of emotional result of this kind of work, the sense of meaninglessness, of boredom from the repetition, of lack of individuality. And because of all these things that there's no, there's no sort of sensory impression to the real world. And it makes you alienated from yourself. That, that capitalism is alienating and exploitative. That was his general idea. Mm -hmm. Like I said, you go into far more detail than that. But this is not this is not this kind of a view. And whether or not um, I am willing to take Marx all the way to <laughs> to um, various other uh, government ideologies or not. Um, I do think that this is an important idea and an important critique. And this poem is a beautiful illustration of why and how that this person who's speaking is completely alienated from any sense of self, any sense of meaningfulness in their life. And they just have in their belly the sense that that in some other life I had meaning. Well, and that's what a fire in the belly is it's your yeah. spirit it's your mm -hmm. it's, yeah yeah and if you're if you're into reading iron john and this men's movement stuff that's where the the man's soul <laughs> resides is in the belly i'm not i do not subscribe to that otherwise i would have been able is to that answer why, is that why is that why you get him to fall in love with you by feeding him food is that that old saying like <laughs> yeah. the, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach well it's more in when men talk about fire in the belly it's the uh you know, just on a whim, I sailed my yacht into the eye of Irma or <laughs> uh, stupidity. Usually fire in the belly generates stupidity. And uh, as a side note, mm -hmm. did you know that there was a hurricane, Danielle? I married her. <laughs> no, I mean, an actual hurricane. Yeah. And she spawned two little typhoons. <laughs> I was very, ha I'm very happy to say that Hurricane Danielle did not really hurt anyone or mm -hmm. do really much of any damage, except for one person did die, mm -hmm. but that person was a surfer who went surfing during a hurricane. Well, okay. So basically what the surfer did is he got all up in Danielle and she wasn't having it. <laughs> She's like, uh-uh, I was going to leave you alone, but now you're here. Yeah. So bye-bye. <laughs> Okay, but uh, so we we go along where I am just like in this poem again. Well, with... because it becomes—I mean, the whole thing is 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 metaphysical. 
Right, but like I mean, we start getting really goofy with the government on its lips, the alphabet congealing there, and then we get to when we get to but in my, belly's my belly's flame. Flames. Now we're like now we're grounded. Now we're or at least I'm like okay, literally we're centered in the belly. Okay, all right, from there. So and rising with the government on its lips. Yeah, that I, I, what the fuck? I that's just well that wackadoo. It, well, that's cons- that's that's uh, attached to the next line, and rising with the government on its lips. Li- lips and rising with the government on its lips the alphabet congealing in the air around our heads okay so it's tacked on to the next sentence so the alphabet is is talking about is rising with the government on its lips right so the the way that you have to understand that that this is probably a job in which you are using government speak or language that is requiring you to um, speak in acronyms. Yeah. Okay, I have yeah. done that. Speak in acronyms or um, everything's cliche yeah. or everything is, um, there's no original language. Right. Right? It, okay. it, it all is like sort of reused language and rising with the government on its lips, the alphabet congealing in the air around our heads. See, the closest before you said that, the closest I get was, okay, is he in an elevator that's not using numbers? I mean, that's, but that was like me reaching. That's the, that's what I was able to come back with. But no, I, yours I get the is better. Sense, I get the sense that everybody's talking and nobody's saying anything. <laughs> right? Everybody's talking and nobody's saying anything original or new or true. Mm-hmm. Right, that it's all sort of part of this. They're um, all thinking snack thoughts and snack strategies. <laughs> yes. Matt, we are we are going to do that Stephen Dunn poem. <laughs> okay, okay, I look forward to it in a year. <laughs> um, you know, and then once you hit, but in my belly's flames. Yeah, and this is the big volta of the poem. And for those of you who don't know the word volta, because I don't know that I've introduced it before, perhaps I have. Um, uh, volta just means turn. Um, so it's the part of the poem that's kind of a noticeable shift. It's either the poems, a shift in the poem's rhetoric or emotional trajectory or imagery, or imagery or description, but, but you, but you can feel it. But one of the things that I find really interesting about the imagery in this poem, despite the fact that it's very non-tangential, right? Everything's light. You have light three times in here. You have rise three times in here. You have dancing uh, twice and dancing might be much more physical if if it were at any moment attached to something mm-hmm. more physical than just like dancing someone is <laughs> dancing i mean it is an action so it is a physical word um but but yeah you've got fluorescent light you have that spray of light that goes around dance halls and you have filled with light it's almost as if the light in this is transforming mm-hmm. as it goes. The fluorescent light begins outside of the body, right? We are hideous in the fluorescent light. And then at some point, the um, the suits themselves are likened to the spray of light that well, goes around dance halls. And we and we we arrive at the most artificial and unflattering of light, fluorescent. So we don't arrive. We begin right with there. the most unflattering and artificial of lights fluorescence and then we end with flame the most basic and uh the first light that humans used absolutely that that's an excellent observation of the poem we got to do a little sound thing that 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 signifies i'm patting myself on the back (laughs) maybe we can give it a little like ding ding (laughs) (laughs) um and then you get this rise 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 and and the first rise is 
horrible because it's the suits that have swallowed you and are going up and down the, the elevator filled with you, right? Mm-hmm. They ride up and down, um, which is just really another way of saying rising. Um, and then the second rising is is the alphabet rising with the government on its lips. Mm-hmm. So theoretical again. And then finally, and rise and break. My name calling me by my many names that are secret and filled with light and rise and break. And so that's, that's abstract as well. Um, and is a surreal image because you have the names that are secret and filled with light and rising and breaking. Um, but you have the secret names, right? Mm-hmm. So you have finally the person's real self, the self that they forgot that they had to forget in order to be swallowed by the suit mm-hmm. at the beginning. And I see my previous lives could be a gesture toward um, a younger self. Or ancestral memory, even. Or ancestral memory. This is not why my my lineage crawled from the ocean or the mud. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And or he's literally talking about previous lives because he's having a spiritual transcendent moment um, in this office building. Like he can no longer be contained inside the suit, inside the individuality, inside of his own alienation, that he feels a kind of spiritual self that is breaking out. But you, um, going, and I, I cut you off, you were talking about his younger self. Yeah, it could have been like one of those secret names was Dee Dee or whatever <laughs> whatever his party name was when he was, because yeah, we know Dennis Johnson's past. Right. I mean, we were familiar with. Jesus' son and some other books. Yeah, for uh, sure. Which definitely were, though fiction, written from experience. Yeah. A Mormon could not have written Jesus' son. Well, unless, unless he's of, recovered. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah sorry. Say. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> sure, he could have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if he had a previous life as well. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I like the sort of transformation of light that happens in the poem. To be, if I'm being completely honest, it's mostly those first four lines that I absolutely love. And I think that it's significant that those were the ones that were repeating in my head. Right. Over and over. You're right. The, the rest of the poem is very abstract. It's surreal. The center of it is just, huh? It's, yeah. It's uh, the first three lines I'm with and the last, uh, what is it? But in the belly was one, two, three, four. Okay. The last four. First three, last four. The first part I'm like, God, it sounds really pretty, but it's not much there. It's kind of like um, um, uh, ha- sitting down and eat with a gorgeous person across from you and then they open their mouth and you're like oh i'm just gonna take my tray of food and go sit somewhere else <laughs> you could think of it that way here's another way to think of it tell me so um sometimes poets are describing an experience for you mm-hmm. and sometimes they're trying to place you inside of that experience okay so part of trying to place you inside of experience may be to have you read these poems that makes you feel alienated from the words, mm-hmm. alienated from meaning itself, mm-hmm. um, that it's stretching language so far that it feels like it's obfuscated what it's actually trying to mean, mm-hmm. um, that he's pushing you so far into a particular direction that um, that you that you actually experience the emotional confusion that the speaker themselves are experiencing. Okay. I mean, it still sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you said, yes. Um, but the poem like sounds beautiful. Right. It's just, what... a, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a different technique. Mm-hmm. Um, like is, I said, is that a named technique or is that just, Hmm. 
No, I mean, I think I think it's just a discussion when okay. you're talking about aesthetics and pro- poetry. Is is the poetry describing an experience, or are they placing you inside okay. of the experience? So it's like they said, if you notice in the center of this, Dennis Johnson does a razzmatazz. <laughs> we can name it. That's called a razzmatazz. <laughs> it's a terrible word for it. <laughs> That's called a spray of light. That's called a congealing, congealing alphabet. I had to stop to take a swig, a swig of wine. Okay. The only other thing that I would say about this particular one is that it is a sonnet. Um, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I'm going to give it a succinct. You throw it out. Description. Okay. So a traditional sonnet, a traditional sonnet, which is not what this is. Traditional sonnet is, is, is in iambic pentameter. It has 14 lines. Um, Yes. Real quick. Uh-huh. I'm, I know what iambic pentameter is, but show me that you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Pentameter. Five. It's a five beat line. Mm-hmm. So there are five stresses to the line. That's what pentameter means. You mm-hmm. change that, say, heptameter, then that's seven beats to the line. Mm-hmm. Or dimeter, that's two beats to the line, right? Iambic is, um, iambic describes the kind of rhythm that is attached to those five stresses okay it's called a foot i am that i am is a kind of foot mm-hmm. so an i am is untie untie it's when the it's unstressed stress but it's a way of measuring out every syllable in the line of the poem so iambic pentameter means that there are five iams in the line and i can go into a lot more depth here which I won't go. No. Yeah. Not, not yet. No, I'm not, I'm not saying no, but I'm just like <laughs> but, for, but, for uh, time. And this yeah. is probably seems like something we need to have an entire show on. Maybe, Maybe. not. Maybe. I don't It's kind of a dry topic. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll make it wet. <laughs> Iambic pentameter wet. That's what, that's what that show will be called. That is our spinoff podcast yeah. coming to you next fall. <laughs> just all about, all about the Iams. Um, no, so a traditional sonnet is in iambic pentameter, has 14 lines, and follows a particular rhyme scheme, usually either Shakespearean or Petrarchan. And the rhyme scheme helps you determine where the volta or the turn of the poem comes. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term volta, again, that's Italian for turn. But I do know that Petrarchan um, was a, the originally a, the, the Italian of the sonnet, mm-hmm. correct? They're the ones who yes. created the sonnet. Yeah, <clears throat> Petrarch. Yeah, and that and that was the standard until Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so in a Petrarchan sonnet, the big volta usually arrives between the eighth and ninth line, with around six lines to conclude the poem. Mm-hmm. And in a Shakespearean sonnet, the volta arrives around line twelve, giving the poet only two lines to conclude the poem, which is hard to do. You basically have to have a uh, three quatrains of an argument and then undercut yourself quickly at the mm-hmm. end. And Shakespeare's famous for this. You've got to be a big wit to mm-hmm. be able to do it. Um, but you don't need to have in-depth knowledge about sonnet rhyme schemes for this particular poem since Dennis Johnson doesn't use either of them. Okay. <laughs> he's invert- He's invented his own rhyme scheme here. Um, the only thing I might note is that the final four lines is a set of rhyming couplets. And you can hear that in uh, flames, names, rise, lives, right? Um, that rise and lives, does that count as a slant or is that close enough to be a genuine rhyme? That's a slant rhyme. 
Really? Okay, because that seems pretty darn close. Yeah. A slant rhymes usually are pretty darn close. Okay. Yeah. It's 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 a very, very close rhyme. Um, at the very at the very least you could say that there's assonance between them, meaning the vowel sounds. Okay. The vowel sounds rhyme. I and I rise lies. Right? And there's this that nice S at the end. Um but so because he has these set of rhyming couplets at the end, it's always given me the strange impression in this particular poem that the ending of the poem is extended. Because usually Usually what you expect from a Shakespearean sonnet is that you do not have couplet rhyming until the very, very end. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, at the end of a Shakespearean sonnet, you have this one couplet that rhymes very fast right next to each other. For the rest of the poem, it's like A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, and then all at the end, G, G. But here, at the end of this poem, you have F, F, G, G, which sort of feels like, sonically, it feels like, an extended ending or a double ending almost to me. Um, like the, there's somehow two endings, <laughs> mm-hmm. which isn't true. Um, but if you took this, you know, around our head, but in my belly's flames, someone is dancing, calling me by many names. I feel like I almost want to put a, a period at the end of that right. sentence, right? Like done. Right. But then it goes on that are secret and filled with light and rise. Okay, I almost want to be done there too, and break, and I see my previous lives. It feels like this this sort of extended ending that he's doing, and so to me it feels like a double ending because because of the double couplet mm-hmm. happening there. I know you're not a fan of protracted denouements. Would this this would not count as that? No, no. You seem like you are you're satisfied with it. You seem like you like this. Um, or no. Yeah, I mean, like I said, my favorite part of this poem are, are the first four lines. Hmm. And and partly it's become such a big part of my own narrative about who I am and who I became, right? Because I left that moment and I, I only stayed in New York for about nine months and then I went off to graduate school for writing. So, um, I mean, it was clear to me at that at that particular moment, I think that a lot of people hadn't really asked me what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And at that moment of my life, I think that I began to realize that I did have ambition toward something, whether or not I was willing to discuss it with somebody else or to name it or anything like that. Um, but that I definitely had an idea of what I did not want. Mm-hmm. Again, we have got to do the Stephen... The, um, the Stephen Dunn poem. I'm, I'm so like, okay. <laughs> and all I know is what I do yeah. not want. And, and what, and the other thing, the other part of it is that this poem wouldn't leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what I did was went to graduate school for poetry. So this became your spirit animal that guided <laughs> you out of New York. It's my spirit poem. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you had your ambitions they were just not aligned with wall street ambitions yeah yeah i think that was the case however we I'd, wish we had the money yeah i'd be okay <laughs> if you you know if we weren't like almost two hundred thousand uh, dollars in almost in student loan debt oh student loan debt okay i'm like we're, we're okay yeah <laughs> yeah you throw on the mortgage there and it's pretty astonishing i went to go do what i love and there is apparently a price for that. 
and a reward. And a reward. Yeah, for sure. You're looking... I find a lot of value mm. in what I do. Um, I certainly am not alienated from my work or um, what I do in my daily life. And I don't have to wear a suit, so there's that. <laughs> well, this has been um, a wonderful evening for us. We yeah. hope it has been for you, too. I think we're going to have to drop um, uh, our our quoting of um, Robert Frost. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, because it, it occurs to us it's probably copyrighted it's probably, material. Yeah, he's... he's the, I mean, I love Robert Frost, but... I don't want them to come after us. Yeah, we're going to have to we're going to come up with some other sign-off language soon. It's been a great evening. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're hoping that you'll have some comments about today's poem. What do you think it is? Do you think this whole Is there are there any are there any poems that make you really hate going to work? Mm. Or that make you question the vocational choices you've made. We'll keep it narrow. Uh, go ahead and put those in the comments below. Also, uh, if you look down, if you would like to get a copy of Dennis Austin's book, as always, we have the link down below for purchase. Before we say goodnight, here's that poem one more time. White, White Collars by Dennis Johnson. We work in this building, and we are hideous in the fluorescent light. You know our clothes woke up this morning and swallowed us like jewels and ride up and down in the elevators, filled with us, turning and returning like the spray of light that goes around dance halls among the dancing fools. My office smells like a theory. But here one weeps to see the goodness of the world laid bare. And rising with the government on its lips, the alphabet congealing in the air around our heads. But in my belly's flames, someone is dancing, calling me by many names that are secret and filled with light and rise and break. And I see my previous lives This has been Vita Readings. Lit from the basement. Good night. Good night. you that I've that I saw Dennis Johnson's cock right <laughs> yes you've mentioned you've mentioned that it was quite large right relaxed um it was <laughs> I was really unsettled by it um but then I learned about showers and growers right um he was certainly a shower <laughs> you were at the urinal right I was at the urinal right. I, I had attended a reading of his it was just after 9-11 they were they were like it was a very surreal did he cry did he cry no, in the reading because um what it was is he did a reading yeah um anyhow so um
Yeah, he did not cry, uh, but I did when I saw his penis. 